Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. We're joined by Finnegan partner Dory Hines to talk about four recent cases that address IPR procedural issues. Thank you for being with us, Dory. So the first decision we want to discuss is called Nippon Shinyaku versus Sarepta. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Sure thing. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, This is a decision from the Federal Circuit in case number 2021-2369. It issued on February 8th, 2022, uh, with the panel of Judges Newman, Lurie, and Stoll. It's an appeal from the District Court in Delaware, and I'm not going to discuss it in detail. Finnegan is representing a party to the case, and the proceedings are continuing But I did want to mention that the case exists, and it is an interesting decision that folks will want to look at and consider if you are dealing with, addressing, or considering contractual provisions that may impact the ability to file an IPR. Uh, So again, the, uh, the decision is in case number 2021. 2369 uh, from uh, the Federal Circuit on February 8th, 2022. So I want to commend it to your reading um, and consideration, though I won't be discussing it in more detail. Okay. Well, great. Let's move to to the second case then, uh, Caltech v. Broadcom. What does that case involve? Uh, Sure thing. The Caltech case came to the Federal Circuit from the Central District of California. It is case number 2020 2222. And the decision issued also in February, February 4th of this year. Uh, The panel is Judges Lori, Lynn, and Dyke, uh, and Judge Lynn being the author of the decision. Now, there are many cases involved, there are many cases, there are many issues rather, involved in this appeal. And I want to address one of them. And that issue is the scope of IPR estoppel, And the fact that the Federal Circuit has now overruled its 2016 decision in Shaw, um, and that case, uh, the Shaw decision at 817 Fed 3rd, 1293. Now, here, the district court addressed IPR estoppel. IPR estoppel is addressed and identified in the statute, uh, 35 USC 315 E2, and that precludes petitioners from raising invalidity grounds in a civil action, the civil action here was in the Central District of California, that they, quote, raised or reasonably could have raised during that inter-party review. The Central District of California here ruled on summary judgment that the validity challenges by Apple and Broadcom were barred. Um, And they were barred because both Apple and Broadcom were aware of the prior art when they filed their IPR petitions, and they reasonably could have raised that art in their IPR petitions. So the art that both Apple and Broadcom uh, wanted to rely on in the district court was art they knew of when they filed their IPR petitions. So the question is whether that challenge would be barred under the IPR uh, estoppel provision in the patent statute. Now, the issue here, and the issue that was addressed in Shaw, 
was what does during the inter-party review process mean in the statute? And the court here in the Caltech decision considered the Shaw, its earlier Shaw decision and said that in Shaw, the, the federal circuit held that IPR does not begin until it is instituted. So if the IPR does not begin until it is instituted, grounds raised in the petition or grounds that reasonably could have been raised in a petition were necessarily not raised during the IPR. So that was the construction of the statute during the inter-party review from Section 315E2 that was addressed in Shaw. So the Federal Circuit framed the issue um, in in this case and then considered the Supreme Court's decision in SAS. Now, the Supreme Court decision in SAS issued after the Shaw decision in 2018, and its holding was that the petition defines the scope of the IPR, not the institution decision. So what the Federal Circuit said here was that decision in the SAS case necessarily impacted the court's reasoning, the Federal Circuit's reasoning in the Shaw case. So given the statutory interpretation in SAS, any ground that could have been raised in a petition is a ground that could have been reasonably raised during the inter-party review. So the Federal Circuit considered that the impact of the SAS decision from the Supreme Court was a shift in the time frame to the filing of the petition and not the institution decision. And looking at that time frame impacts what is stopped later. So the Federal Circuit reasoned that the Supreme Court's later decision in SAS makes clear that Shaw, while perhaps correct at the time in light of the courts, the Federal Circuit's pre-SAS interpretation of the statute, cannot be sustained under the Supreme Court's interpretation of the related statutory provisions. And so was this outcome a surprise story? It, it really was not. I think that court watchers and, you know, considering the SAS decision from the Supreme Court in 2018, it cannot reasonably sa- be said that this was a surprise, but it does clarify from the federal circuit some conflicting decisions of district courts where district courts have really struggled with the interpretation of statutory estoppel given the Federal Circuit's earlier decision in Shaw. But in fact, now Shaw has been overruled um, and specifically overruled by the Federal Circuit. Interestingly, uh, this is a panel decision. So it's a panel of three judges that overruled the prior Federal Circuit decision in Shaw Typically, when cases are overruled, when federal circuit cases are overruled, they will be uh, overruled by the court in bank and not by a panel decision. But here, uh, the federal circuit said it had the authority and that the panel in particular had the authority to overrule Shaw in light of SAS without in bank action. The federal circuit noted that while SAS and the Supreme Court's decision in SAS did not specifically overrule Shaw or even address the scope of estoppel under Section 315E2, the reasoning of Shaw rests on the assumption 
that the board need not institute on all grounds, an assumption that SAS specifically rejected. So based on that reasoning, the panel had the authority to overrule its earlier decision in Shaw and has now done so. Okay. And let's move on to the third case, uh, Alarm.com versus Hirschfeld. What issue is addressed there? So the issue that is addressed here also relates to IPR estoppel, uh, not directly, and I'll explain that. Uh, let me give a little background. Uh, the Alarm.com decision is case number 2021-2102. The decision issued February 24th, and the panel is uh, Judges Toronto, Chen, and Cunningham, with Judge Toronto being the author judge. And this case comes from the Eastern District of Virginia. So the issue is here, whether Alarm.com can maintain its suit under the APA, challenging the PTO director's authority to vacate ex parte reexamination requests based on the estoppel provision in 35 USC section 315 E1. Now, the Caltech case, which I just addressed, that case involved the estoppel provision in section 315 E2, and that precludes petitioners from raising invalidity grounds in a civil action. There is a companion provision, section 315 E1, which is involved in the Alarm.com case. And that statutory provision, E1, says that a petitioner in an inner Part A review uh, that results in a final decision may not request or maintain a proceeding before the office with respect to that claim or any ground that the petitioner raised or reasonably could have raised during the inter-party review. So similar language that was addressed uh, by the court in the Caltech decision, but here this is IPR estoppel as applied to other challenges at the patent office as opposed to other challenges in a civil action. So let me provide a little background here. Alarm.com had filed a number of IPR petitions, and the PTAB issued final written decisions rejecting the challenges as to certain claims. Some were accepted, but what's important here is that some of those validity challenges in Alarm.com's IPR petitions uh, were rejected. And those decisions were affirmed by the Federal Circuit in 2018. Now, after the decisions by the Federal Circuit affirming uh, the PTAB, Alarm.com filed ex parte reexaminations on the claims it lost on in the IPRs. When the ex parte reexaminations were filed, they were given control numbers, serial numbers, and filing dates uh, by the Patent Office. But ultimately, the director vacated those reexamination requests based on the estoppel provision in Section 315E1. And the director did so not because there was no substantial new question of patentability. That's the substantive ground, the substantive standard used to determine whether ex parte reexamination will be granted. Instead, the director vacated them based on the estoppel provision in Section 315E1. So after receiving the decision vacating the ex parte re-exam requests, Alarm.com brought a suit 
in the Eastern District of Virginia seeking review of the director's, the PTO director's vacatur under the APA. Now, the, the district court and the decision on appeal here, the district court dismissed Alarm.com's complaint under Rule 12b, holding that review of the director's decision was precluded. In its decision, the district court said and noted that since a challenger cannot appeal a substantive decision of an ex parte proceeding, it wouldn't make sense to allow it to appeal a procedural decision. Now here, recall that in ex parte reexamination, a third party requester really has very minimal involvement once the reexam request is filed. They're allowed to file a reply. And after that, all participation by the reexam requester is precluded. And that includes an appeal of an adverse decision under 35 U.S.C. Section 306. So the reasoning of the district court was, well, since the challenger can't appeal, is not allowed to appeal a substantive decision of an ex parte proceeding, it doesn't make sense in the re-exam procedural framework to allow uh, the challenger to appeal a procedural decision, which is what the uh, district court found this to be. And the, the district court said, regardless of the director's reason for denying the ex parte re-exam, and by that, uh, the district court is distinguishing here, uh, it's not that the director or the PTO found there was no substantial new question of patentability, which is the standard for ex parte re-exam. Instead, the director looked at the estoppel provision and said, because of the estoppel provision, the re-examinations could not proceed. And the district court said, regardless of the reason, it doesn't matter why, the APA does not create what it called a workaround that allows third parties to appeal. The Federal Circuit rejected that argument. And in doing so, the Federal Circuit considered in what circumstances judicial review is available and noted that there's a strong presumption that judicial review of decisions is available unless it's specifically precluded. And it wasn't here. And the Federal Circuit said that Alarm.com's APA challenge to the director's vacatur decisions based on estoppel is not precluded. In doing so, the court looked at the statutory text, the overall statutory scheme, and the legislative history pertaining to ex parte re-exam and said that it did not evince a fairly discernible intent to preclude judicial review. The upshot is that the federal circuit uh, returned the case to the district court to consider vacatur on the merits. So while this issue relates to uh, the scope of estoppel, that issue hasn't been decided yet. But what the federal circuit said is the district court needs to decide that. So it is returned to the district court to determine the scope of uh, IPR estoppel in a proceeding before the patent office and its applicability in this circumstance. This is interesting to practitioners uh, because of the potential for the use of ex parte reexaminations in conjunction with IPR proceedings in challenging uh, patent invalidity. 
Very good. Well, let, let's move on to, to the last case, Intel v. Broadcom. Can you tell us what the issue that is addressed there? Sure thing. This decision it issued in December of 2021, so fairly recently. And the issue is here, um, the standing to appeal a PTAB decision. This case came to the federal circuit from the PTAB. And uh, the panel was Judges Prost, Toronto, and Hughes, with Judge Prost being the author judge. And the issue is whether Intel had standing to appeal an adverse PTAB decision in an IPR. And the Federal Circuit noted that uh, standing is not necessarily a requirement to appear before an administrative agency. So what that means is that uh, standing is not necessarily an issue to file an IPR at the PTAB, but that the standing requirement kicks in, what it said kicks in, when a party seeks review in a federal court. In order to have standing to appeal the decision from the PTAB, the party has to demonstrate an injury in fact, that injury has to be fairly traceable to uh, the challenged conduct and likely to be redressed by a favorable judicial decision. Here, what the court was focusing on was whether there was an injury in fact, and whether Intel suffered an injury in fact, and that must be concrete and particularized and actual, not conjectural or hypothetical. Now, in the context of an IPR, generally an IPR petitioner, when it has engaged or is engaging in or will likely engage in conduct that would give rise to a possible infringement suit. So the question of standing to appeal an adverse IPR decision at the federal circuit is whether there's conduct by the petitioner here, Intel, whether there's some conduct that would give rise to a possible infringement suit. Now here, Intel was not sued on the patent that was involved in the IPR. Now, the cases are are easy when the petitioner is a party that has been sued. Clearly, there's uh, potential injury in fact because they have been sued. Here, Intel was not sued on the patent that was challenged in the IPR. But the Federal Circuit noted that Qualcomm had mapped the patent claims to an Intel product and only an Intel product in a prior suit that hit it brought against Apple. So the question here and the issue the Federal Circuit addressed was whether that conduct by Qualcomm gave rise to a potential injury by Intel. And what the Federal Circuit said was, it is of no moment that that earlier case was not against Intel. It also didn't matter that the case between Qualcomm and Apple settled in 2019 before Intel filed the IPR. The court noted a couple of things. Qualcomm was not offering a covenant not to sue to Intel. The court said that refusal on its own was not sufficient to create a controversy, but it was informative. Um, So interesting moving forward that it is an issue that the court will consider. There needs to be more, however. The fact that Intel continued to sell the product, um, that product that Qualcomm had mapped on the patent claims 
to Apple and at least another customer, and that in doing so, it must address the risk of an infringement suit by Qualcomm. So in the end, the facts showed that there was potential for injury to Intel because Intel continued to sell the product and the court, the federal circuit that is, addressed and adopted that rationale um, and said that that was enough, that risk of an infringement suit by Qualcomm given Intel's conduct of continued sales of the product that had been mapped against the product, uh, against the patent rather, that was sufficient to, to provide Intel with standing in the appeal to the federal circuit. Well, we'll leave it there. Dory, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner, Dory Hines. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.